Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Supply shortages, Indian hospitals struggle for oxygen, as more lives are lost. Bullish Buffett, the sage of Omaha, says the U.S. economy is red hot, quote, and so are prices. And courtroom clash, Epic Games challenging Apple in an app store battle royale. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to be with you and have you with us to kick off a brand new month together. This week, actually, it's all about the peas, pandemic, the entire world. Of course, watching developments in India and the arrival of aid to try and help ease the nation's suffering. Prices, inflation talks up, are talks are heating up with famed investor Warren Buffett saying the US economy, as I mentioned, there is red hot. And speaking of red hot, payrolls, US jobs numbers this week expected to show a net 1 million jobs recovered in the past month. And one more pre-market trade in the US, positive. The bulls hoping to see stocks break out after two weeks of sideways action. Just to give you some perspective here, we are three quarters of the way through earnings season. A whopping 85% of S&P 500 firms have topped forecasts. And that's due to relatively low expectations. Or is it due to firms truly outperforming? Well, I think it's a mix of the two. And that's a reason for short-term consolidation, especially when the majors are still sitting at record highs. And just to be clear on that heating up of prices, the mention of inflation in the first quarter tripled year on year. That's the biggest jump, in fact, since 2004. Now, from red hot to recovery, rebounds across Europe and Asia to German consumer spending soaring in March. That was up 11% year over year. Hong Kong's recovery also on target too, with Q1 GDP growth hitting an 11-year high after six quarters of contraction. No ordinary recessions going on here. There are clear reasons for recovery optimism, but of course that recovery has to include addressing India's COVID crisis. And that's where we begin today's drivers. And while the official case count in India heads north of 20 million, many believe the real picture is far worse. As essential medical supplies dwindle, international aid is coming. But for some, it's simply too late, as Sam Kylie reports from New Delhi. Tears for a much-loved colleague, Dr. R.K. Hintani, killed by COVID-19 in the same hospital where he'd spent a year treating other victims of the coronavirus. Grief and the inevitable silent question, who's next? He died here in this intensive care unit because the Batra hospital where he worked ran out of the most basic necessity, oxygen. He was not alone. The medical director of the hospital, SCL Gupta, gave the mid-afternoon casualty figures in this war against a virus. 
eight patients died today. Hey. Just now. And five patients, they are in under resuscitation. May or may not survive. Just because in the capital city of Delhi and because of want of oxygen, which is the lifeline. He knew the chances of reviving the five were slim. When you heard this morning that you had just a few hours of oxygen and then eight patients died, what does that do to you, to the soul of a doctor? I cannot explain to them my feeling. We are dying inside. We are the saviors, not the murderers. And we cannot express our feeling. I cannot express my feeling to you, how I'm feeling inside. Is it destroying you? Yes. How long have you been a doctor? What, what, sir? How long have you been a doctor? 45 years. Must be soul destroying. I can't imagine what it must be like for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. Over the next hour, four of the five resuscitation patients died. In a space of about two hours, when the oxygen ran out, 12 people died in this hospital, which in every other respect is a first world facility. They simply asphyxiated. The hospital copes by advising patients to source their own supplies of oxygen to cover its erratic supplies. Local and international efforts to get enough of the gas into India's capital are still failing. India's central and national governments have been unable to explain the oxygen shortages and as the numbers of people infected with COVID-19 soar in India, along with the daily death toll, the Batra Hospital, like many others, will admit no more patients. There's no point. We will uh, not take more admissions because we don't want people to die in front of us. So they can go to other hospitals where the oxygens are available. Dr. Kishor Chola runs a Hindu temple charity. He pulled through COVID before the oxygen started to run out. From housekeeping, the, and even the nursing staff, the supervisors, all are working very hard. Fair enough. But the Indian government's failure to ensure basic supplies to hospitals in the face of a long-term pandemic is simply not going to wash. And Sam joins us now. Sam, a harrowing weekend for the, for the people involved here, for their families and, and for you too having these conversations. Just explain where you are now and, and what's the situation with oxygen there? Well, Julia, I'm in an NGO. It's basically a camp where a local NGO had been able to provide some oxygen and they provide the oxygen by driving many hundreds of miles uh, they're even expecting a delivery, they hope, from Mumbai, which is 1,200 miles by road away. But these three cylinders here have all run out. There are only two now uh, that are functioning. Uh, this patient here arrived about an hour and a half ago. He's in a very, very bad state. His family have told me that they, Julia, have been uh, to 10 or 20, rather 20 more than 20 uh, hospitals in search of treatment. And this is where they've ended up. And frankly, this is, as my report rather indicated, often a better place to be since there's better chances of oxygen. Now that is the reality on the ground, but this is the point of view as expressed by the, no, none other than the uh, Minister of Health for India. 
The Indian government has provided data for appropriate oxygen production according to demand. And according to the production, states have been allocated their quotas. Delhi has been allotted more oxygen than what they probably asked for. Now, Julia, clearly that uh, flies in the face of reality, but the national government is very much on the back foot over this. It has just in the last few hours said it's going to mobilise all medical students to try to help cope with, the, cope with the COVID crisis, but still giving out mixed messaging, saying it's desperately trying to produce oxygen and at the same time saying they're already producing enough. I can tell you for what is absolutely sure, there isn't enough here and people are dying, Julia. No, and we can see that, Sam. What about supplies from elsewhere in the world? I mean, we've seen this response from the international community saying, look, we're going to send, we're going to send supplies, we're going to help. Sam, what are you being told there about when things will arrive? Well, we know that quite a lot has arrived. Uh, we've seen, the, seen it on the television. Uh, there have been uh, aircraft from the United States, United Kingdom, France, Germany, European Union in general. Also, Asian countries been con- contributing Uh, But what we haven't yet seen is any effect uh, on the ground here in Delhi, nor have we heard reports of elsewhere, uh, for example, neighbouring Uttar Pradesh, uh, where my colleague uh, Clarissa Ward was over the weekend. She was telling me, uh, and she's got a report coming up on this later, that uh, the situation there was just as catastrophic. So where there is a heavy infection of COVID, there doesn't appear to be enough oxygen no matter the claims of the government and no matter the level of effort that's been put in by the international community at the moment it's simply not getting through yeah arriving in the country is one thing but actually getting it to the places where it's needed is is another thing entirely sam thank you for being there and for bringing that report to us and our hearts with the families behind you and of course he's a very young man there as well so we keep our fingers crossed for his recovery thanks sam okay Later in the show, we'll hear from the Lancet COVID-19 Commission's Task Force for India on what more needs to be done. Okay, let's move on. The stark divide between India's terrible suffering and America's ongoing COVID recovery could not be greater. Famed investor Warren Buffett is warning of, quote, very substantial inflation as the United States heals and companies raise prices. Buffett's second in command at Berkshire Hathaway also blasting Bitcoin and SPACs at this weekend's shareholder meeting. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, he said it and it's clear this is a very unusual recession in terms of what they're seeing and, and the recovery. But it was his comments on prices. We're raising prices. Other people are raising prices yeah. and everyone's accepting it. Yeah. And he says, look, it's substantial inflation, not transitory, the word you're hearing from the Fed, but from from Warren Buffett, he used the word substantial. And he said 85 percent of the economy right now is in super high gear. That super high gear means people are have more money in their pockets. They're paying higher prices and companies are raising prices, uh, pointing out that, you know, furniture business and housing business, those are uh, important businesses for for Buffett, uh, Buffett's company. Um, they're seeing higher steel prices and lumber prices filter through there. When you look at some of these consumer products companies, they've already said a handful of them have already said they'll be raising prices on everything from diapers to Kleenex uh, and, and all kinds of different consumer products. So we know the prices are coming right now and gasoline prices also higher. So just all the way down the line, Buffett is saying you're seeing these substantial increases. And it's because of the rapid deployment of funds from Congress. Right. They got money out there to people. People have that money. They're spending that money. Prices are rising and consumers are chasing those higher prices. 
Yeah, and that's the problem. This is a conundrum of pumping the system with money. You fuel asset prices of all shapes and sizes, and it's those with the least disposable income that spend on these essential yeah. products as well that that feel the heat. Um, but other asset prices like SPACs also raise some interesting comments and some interesting comments about how these actually work in practice and, of course, the performance after a, a company goes public. It's so interesting the way he and his a longtime Lieutenant Charlie Munger uh, poo-pooed these SPACs. In fact, poo-poo mm-hmm. is too nice of a word to say what they were saying about that. Charlie Munger called them shameful, um, immoral, uh, stupid. I mean, these are the kinds of words they were using to talk about them. And, you know, and, and Warren Buffett said they're a killer for sort of his acquisition uh, attempts, right? Because you have all this money out there that is sole purpose is to go buy stuff uh, and has to buy stuff in a couple of years. So that makes it hard for the $145 billion he has uh, to deploy to go find uh, to go find hunting targets. So that's an interesting sort of. And he said that they won't go on forever like this. This is he didn't say the word fad, but he made it almost sound like a fad. This is the way Wall Street works. Wall Street goes where the money is and this is where the money is now. And that's where um, it'll be chasing. They talked about, uh, you know, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, but also Robinhood. And, and he used the word casino to talk about retail investors and the ease with which retail investors can can without any kind of real information and with borrowed money can uh, you know can enter into the stock market right now so just a feeling of bubbles all around here from from the the Buffett team this weekend yeah the quote on the SPACs of course the more you get of that the sillier your civilization is getting it was a it was a punchy comment and of course it's tough if you're a distressed asset buyer um finding some form of distress and cheap valuations in this market's really tough. What do you do? You buy Apple. And that's what they resorted to. <laughs> and he yeah. sold Apple last year and said yeah, that was right. one of those mistakes. He said he, oh. he made that mistake last year and acknowledged. So Warren Buffett does acknowledge when um, the Oracle of Omaha gets it wrong. So he said they should not have sold Apple last year. Yes, I'm cheeky this morning. Christy <laughs> thank you for that. And uh, as Christine mentioned, cryptocurrency also being mentioned. Cryptocurrency Ethereum soaring to an all-time high this morning, quadrupling its value this year. The rise and rise of the world's second biggest cryptocurrency threatening to overshadow better-known rival Bitcoin. Paul and Monica joins me. And there are huge differences in the underlying blockchain technology. And this is critical, I think, to why we're seeing this catch-up in uh, Ethereum. Paul, talk us through it. Yeah, by the way, you are not as cheeky, Julia, as Charlie Munger with his comments about (laughs) cryptocurrency, which we'll get to in a minute. With Ethereum, what is very interesting, as you point out, it is overshadowing the rise in Bitcoin, which is also dramatic. Bitcoin has doubled this year, but Ethereum has really caught on because the Ether blockchain is the crypto payment of choice for all of these NFT sales that have really taken the art and collectible world by storm. You've already spoken to people before about his record-setting auction at uh, you know Christie's, you know, selling a piece of NFT artwork for nearly $70 million. The baseball card company Tops is going public through a SPAC, so it's combining two, uh, you know, uh, fashionable things in one, partly because Tops has caught on and is also launching its own NFTs for baseball cards and other collectibles. So Ether is riding that train. And I think that is the big reason why Ethereum prices are now you know, up as much as they are. And it's a you know, $370 billion market value for, for Ether, which is still significantly lower than Bitcoin's $1.1 billion. But when you take I'm sorry, 1.1 trillion. When you combine the two, 
they make up about two thirds of all the market value of every cryptocurrency in the world. Yeah, they're big, uh, big deals in this space. The other one that caught my attention as well and rumored European Investment Bank could launch a digital bond sale on the Ethereum blockchain network as well. So then you're really talking. OK, let's talk about Mungo's comments about uh, Bitcoin. I hate the Bitcoin success. I don't welcome the currency that's so useful to kidnappers and extortionists and so forth. So I think I should say modestly that I think the whole development is disgusting and contrary to the interest of civilization. Wowzers. Tell us how you really feel, Charlie. He is not one to make words and uh, not hold back at all. And it was telling is Buffett just set him up. It was like a big, fat softball over home plate for Munger to hit out of the park. Because Buffett said he's learned his lesson. He knows that a lot of people watching the stream on Saturday were probably Bitcoin bulls. He's been wrong about Bitcoin, so he's not going to double down on bearish comments. He let Munger do that for him. And, And I think Munger is right in that cryptocurrencies, the epic rise is insane and probably a bit of a bubble. But I think what's getting tiresome is hearing some of the criticisms from people like Munger about it being the crypto of choice for organized crime and extortionists and kidnapping. This is a legitimate part of the financial world right now. And I think Munger might be naive to not look at the fact that PayPal and Square, which last I checked are not the mob, are you know, going big on Bitcoin. Big Wall Street firms are making investments in cryptocurrencies. The Federal Reserve is starting to talk more about whether or not a digital dollar might make sense. Crypto is here to stay. Buffett and Munger may not like it, but the new generation of investors, I don't think they honestly care. No, and I was about to say, what about the mighty US dollar and suitcases of cash used for illicit purposes, quite frankly? And very quickly, I just looked at the data on this as well. Um, According to Chain Analysis, the illicit share of crypto activity, and for all sorts of reasons, they don't capture it all, I don't think, 0.3% of transactions, another coin firm saying around $10.5 billion, even if it's 2% of transactions, that's $60 billion, and compare that to the size of the market that you were just talking about. I don't know. Yeah. Crypto More work money. needed before you shout about this. Yeah. Yes. We concur, my friend. Paula Monica, thank <laughs> you for that. All right, still to come on First Move. Courtroom drama, Epic's lawsuit over Apple's App Store goes to trial in a landmark case that could change the future of technology. And second home startup, Picasso, gallops to unicorn status in a record five months. But can it keep up the pace? Stay with us. That's all next. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top stories. The COVID crisis spirals in India. Overwhelmed hospitals are sounding the alarm. As we heard earlier, 12 people died in a New Delhi hospital on Saturday after oxygen supplies ran out. The government has been ordered by the Supreme Court to find more. But vaccines are also hard to find. Despite a new drive to offer shots to 18 to 45-year-olds, multiple states say they don't have enough supplies. The world is trying to help respond. This aid arriving from the UAE and Thailand. Corporations also acting. Pfizer is sending millions of dollars worth of medical supplies too. Chandrika Bahadu is the chair of the Lancet Commission on COVID-19 India Task Force and joins us now. Chandrika, thank you so much for your time this morning. Just can you give us your assessment of what we've seen even just in the last 48 hours? 
Thank you, Julia, for having me. Uh, I think what we're seeing uh, continue now into its third week uh, is a really virulent, really um, massive wave of COVID infections. Uh, there are some glimmers of hope emerging, very, very slight ones. Uh, we've seen the number of new infections in the state of Maharashtra, which has been the highest contributor to cases, decline um, gradually, but fairly consistently over the last week. Uh, we've seen a couple of other states where the numbers seem to be going down as well, uh, but we're still very much in the throes of it. And uh, where it has uh, really hit is in terms of medical supplies and medical infrastructure. Um, and that's what I think has been dominating the headlines for the last few days. You mentioned that we're into the third week now. I know it's difficult based on modelling and the cases that you're seeing, but have you in your own mind a sense of how many more weeks, based on what we're seeing, India is still going to be battling and the healthcare system in particular is going to be pushed to the limit, if not beyond? I think a lot of that does depend on the policy measures that get taken from now on. Uh, you know, going back to the case of Maharashtra, they've been in lockdown since the first week of April. Um, right. And you see the effect of that. And that is pretty much the um, strategy now moving forward for a lot of other states, uh, which is to try whatever can be done to reduce the number of uh, trans the, the transmission rates, uh, because that eventually will uh, bring the numbers down. There are some epidemiological estimates that say we are closing, cl closing in on a peak. Uh, but these are all projections. So it's hard to tell whether the peak will come in the middle of May, as several have projected, whether it will take a little bit longer. But we know that deaths lag, um, the case rises by uh, a couple of weeks. So we're going to continue to see high mortality uh, for the month of May. I mean, you have been very pointed about making suggested recommendations, and it comes down to the question of how do you break the chain of transmission of, of the virus that we're seeing? And in a country like India, when we're talking about lockdowns, it, it surely has to be targeted because the economic impact of telling people to stay at home and not allowing them to go out, particularly for the poorest people in the nation, is equally bad, if not worse, than what they're facing in terms of the virus. How is that best tackled, Chandrika, and are we finding the right balance? You're absolutely right. You know, the lockdowns are a double-edged sword, uh, particularly in a country like ours. Uh, the recommendations that we've made have been essentially to not think about lockdowns in a binary sense of lockdown versus no lockdown, but really think of a, of a range of options in terms of even the kind of closures we're talking about. And one of the things that we've recommended in our most recent report is to think about how we can classify different parts of the country based on the spread of the pandemic. And so there are still a large number of districts in the country that are not uh, seeing the wave that we're seeing in Delhi and in Uttar Pradesh and in other you know, high-risk high, high risk parts of the country. And over there, you could probably have a strategy that is less about lockdowns and much more about wearing masks and distancing and banning gatherings, things that you know, in place should not allow numbers to rise to the levels that they have risen. Uh, in other places, however, unfortunately, there is no uh, way out where the numbers are what they are um, other than shutting down for a few weeks. We've also seen from evidence from around the world that one-week lockdowns or weekend lockdowns are not effective. So what, when you do shut down, you do need to shut down for about six weeks at a minimum before uh, you, you really start seeing a significant decline. 
Um, that's what we're seeing in Maharashtra, for example. And so I think the, the, the balance there is to make sure uh, that provisions are made for the poor because uh, this could be devastating. And it's a terrible choice. And, uh, you know, I have a, a lot of sympathy for the government because this is a difficult choice to make um, under all circumstances. Uh, when we, when the commission, uh, when the commission task force set up work uh, about uh, a couple of months ago, our focus was on recommendations that would not bring us to this point. Uh, but we are at this point, and so these are the choices in front of us. None of them are good. You said you had sympathy for the government. Do, do you also understand some of the criticism out there that India shouldn't have been so caught off guard by this latest wave? And I guess tied to that, are you confident that this is the, the last wave once we get through this that India sees and actually that the government will be better prepared if there is another? Yes, so... I've, of course, I'm, I'm familiar with the criticism, and I think there are two aspects to the criticism. One is uh, the prediction of the wave itself. And I think there, uh, there were a lot of epidemiologists and a lot of experts who did think that there could be a second wave and there, there was there's a possibility of a second wave uh, sometime around now. I do believe that the virulence of the wave has caught everyone by surprise because this is a wave that has been driven by several of the variants that have emerged over the last few months, and we did not have the intelligence and the information uh, to really uh, predict that at the, at the time. Uh, so yes, there, there could have been better preparation, absolutely. Once the wave began in one part of the country, uh, there was, uh, that was the time actually for the rest of the country and for other states in the country to preemptively try and uh, impose restrictions, try and ban gatherings, try and do a lot of things that could have probably stemmed the increase in transmission rates that followed uh, from, from the first few places in the country where the wave began. To your question as to whether this is the last wave, I doubt that very much. Uh, we've seen all over the world that uh, epidemics like this go through several waves before they finally become endemic. Uh, but if uh, we are able to learn our lessons well from this wave, if we're able to plan effectively and proactively and ramp up our medical system and practice all of the, uh, all of the interventions we need to keep people safe, COVID safe behaviors, if those are communicated and practiced, then I don't think we need to have another wave that's quite like this one. Fingers crossed. And work together as a world to ensure that we're maximizing vaccine supplies as well and manufacturing. Chandrika, great to have you with us. Thank you so much and stay safe, please. Chandrika Bahuda, there, the chair of Lancet Commission on COVID-19 India Task Force. Thank you. Okay, coming up in less than two hours, a special edition of Connect the World. India's COVID catastrophe is an in-depth look at how bad it is, how it happened, and how help can be achieved. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on the first trading day of the month. The majors close to record highs once again with the Nasdaq coming off its sixth straight winning month. Lots of talk, too, of how the unexpectedly strong U.S. recovery will affect the stimulus picture. Washington Watch is suggesting that President Biden will need to trim his massive spending proposals to get them through Congress as the rebound surprises to the upside. Plus, will April showers lead to May pricing powers? Fed Chair Jay Powell calls the latest inflationary trends transitory. The fear is that rising prices may be more systemic amid tighter labor markets, supply bottlenecks and soaring prices for commodities, as we heard from Warren Buffett and team over the weekend. Now, the brands 
that are almost as old as the internet itself. AOL and Yahoo are being sold off by Verizon in a media deal worth $5 billion. Paul Monica is back with us. Paul, we're keeping you busy this morning. The message from this deal for me from Verizon is that they simply can't compete with Facebook and with Google with the ad spending revenue. So they're saying, OK, we give it to someone else to have a go. Yeah, exactly, Julie. I think there are two things there. That point that you've made is spot on. Clearly, there are two major tech media firms dominating digital advertising, and Verizon is not one of them. But also, I think it is a sign that Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg really never probably liked this business all that much to begin with. It was more from his predecessor, Lowell McAdam, that these deals were done. Vestberg making no secret that Verizon's future is in 5G and you know AOL and Yahoo don't really fit into that. So I think that what I'm very interested in seeing is what Apollo, the new owners, are going to do now that they are renaming what used to be Oath and then became Verizon Media. It's going back to Yahoo. And I think in some respects, that makes a lot of sense. Yahoo is a brand that, yes, it's an old internet brand, but it still has some cachet. I mean, we talked about Warren Buffett before and Charlie Munger. The only way to watch that was on Yahoo Finance. Yahoo Sports is a very significant force in the world of fantasy sports, which is a growing business. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if Apollo doubles down on sports, on finance and news more broadly. Cachet and cash E. I was looking at the revenues of this $1.9 billion worth of sales in Q1. I mean, this is not to be underestimated if they can extract greater value out of this Apollo and focus on it. It definitely is a brand, both Yahoo probably more than AOL, obviously, that still is something that resonates with digital consumers. And there is something to be said for the fact that you might have more revenue opportunities beyond advertising as well. Does it make sense for Yahoo Finance and Yahoo News to have more subscription products? Perhaps you're you're likely to see more in the world of fantasy sports where you can charge people you know to uh, pay for uh, playing a season that's something that i think the new owners of yahoo will probably explore a little more closely so i think advertising and other uh, you know revenue opportunities could help make what is now going to be just known as yahoo again not the next google or facebook but uh, maybe a strong third contender Watch this space. That's a bold call, my friend. A bold call. We'll see. (laughs) Thank you for that. Okay, our fierce battle now between Apple and Epic Games begins in federal court today. The maker of Fortnite claiming Apple's app store is anti-competitive and monopolistic. But Apple says it's just one of many ways for developers to distribute their apps. Claire Sebastian joins me with more. Okay, in English, what the battle here is whether or not Apple's entitled to take a 30% cut of revenues that come from in-app purchases. This is the bottom line, Claire, and what they're battling over. Yeah, exactly, Julia. This is going to be a a pretty sort of interesting case as it unfolds. We expect to see fireworks. The two CEOs, Tim Sweeney of Epic Games and Tim Cook of Apple, are expected to testify. They've already been sparring in front of the judge. The key argument for Epic 
is not just that Apple is a monopoly, because that in itself is not illegal, but that Apple uses that sort of monopolistic power to, to, to force developers to pay this 30% commission, uh, not only on app downloads, but on in-app purchases, uh, and thereby stifles competition and hurts the consumer. Now, Apple says uh, not only that, that Epic Games acted in bad faith in provoking this lawsuit in the first place, you'll remember they did this last summer by uh, you know unilaterally acting against the terms of their contract with Apple and launching their own uh, in-app payment system. Apple then kicked them off uh, the, the App Store, Fortnite that is, uh, and they launched this whole sort of campaign to, to, to paint themselves as the victim in this. Apple says that was in bad faith. They also say, A, that they're not a monopoly. There are many, many ways, particularly with games, uh, for, for consumers to download them. Uh, they also say that many of their apps are free, so Apple doesn't even get uh, revenue from those apps. Uh, and they say that, uh, that, that they, you know, the, the fees they charge, the 30%, are comparable across the industry. So that's Apple's argument. This is going to take, Julia, a couple of weeks. And if you look at the attitude of the judge and some of the court filings that are out there, it really could go either way here. Yeah, and that's the challenge, because what you are doing here is you're challenging the entire business model, really, of how Apple is running these app systems and the 30% commission that they take. So it's not just relevant for Epic Games. It would be relevant for every app developer on the on the operating system, as you mentioned, but also it applies to the likes of Google as well and how they operate. So this could really blow a hole in the business model for all of these big tech giants that use this kind of system. Yeah, this kind of sort of marketplace for that has become so ubiquitous. I think that's the central question here. Can you run this kind of marketplace under your own rules when you're talking about a billion iPhone users or, or, or Amazon, uh, where they, of course, have the marketplace, but that competes with their own products? I think this is going to be really closely watched. Also, for Apple, which is facing other legal uh, headaches, look at Europe, which charged it with abuse of, uh, of its monopolistic power last week. But again, Julia, I think it's worth bearing in mind what happens if it goes Apple's way? Are we then sort of now entrenched in this world where the big tech companies are just getting bigger and bigger. And then we go back to the question of, is that actually a force for good? Yes, and questionable, and back to the regulators to answer all of those. (laughs) Close, Sebastian, thank you for that. All right, up next, the runaway unicorn startup Picasso wants to democratize second home ownership in a red hot real estate market. We've got the CEO to explain. back to first move. Real estate startup Picasso is officially the world's fastest unicorn. Within five months, the company hit a $1 billion valuation. Picasso sells co-ownership shares in second homes. Properties are divided into fractions that are bought and sold separately. The company makes its money through a 10 to 12% markup on each property and a 1% home management fee. And joining us now is Austin Allison, CEO and co-founder of Picasso. Austin, great to have you on the show. Did I get that right? Having me. Yes, you nailed it exactly. So Picasso is on a mission to make second home ownership possible for more people. We're effectively creating a whole new category of ownership where you can buy a beautiful second home in a beautiful location for as little as one eighth the cost. And it's analogous to do-it-yourself co-ownership. Imagine if you and a group of friends decided that you wanted to own a home together in a second home market. You could certainly do this on your own, but it's very difficult. So Picasso makes it easy. We handle everything from aggregating the owners to making available financing to managing the home throughout the life of the property. So it's like a timeshare. 
No, it's actually very different than a timeshare. Um, the big differences are, number one, it's a single family home as opposed to a commercial hotel or resort product. But number two, and probably most importantly, this is true home ownership as opposed to resort timeshares, which we rights to use. And here's the test I like to use, Julia. Imagine if Picasso, the company, were to just go away and disappear. In that scenario, the owners would still own a real home in a real market that has real intrinsic value, you can't say the same about a commercial timeshare program. Okay, so talk to me about how many people have got involved in this and what happens if a person buys an eighth, for example, or two eighths and then decides, you know what, I want to sell it on. Are there any restrictions on who they sell it to and do you get a cut of that sale when they sell it on to? Yeah, so Picasso and co-ownership in general is growing very quickly, faster than we could have ever imagined. We've had more than a million people visit our website and more than 60,000 people inquire about buying a Picasso home or learning more just in the last six months following our launch. So there's an incredible amount of demand for second homes at a lower cost. In terms of how it works, yes, you're exactly right that you can buy more than one eight. It all depends on how often you plan to use the home. So what we typically find is that one or two families will purchase a quarter of the home and three or four families will end up purchasing an eighth. So on average, we see about five to six families per home. And the way that Picasso makes money is we charge a service fee that's 12% of the total price. And that covers all of, this, all of the services that we provide from aggregating the buyers to setting up the legal framework to making available financing all the way through to managing the property throughout its life. And so if the price of the home falls, and admittedly, we're not seeing much of that right now, quite frankly, um, you still take a cut of the resale value, even if the person's in negative equity and sells out. No, actually, we just charge a service fee one time up front. And then after that, when you go to resell your Picasso, it works just like a normal home where you pay a standard real estate commission. But any appreciation in the in the underlying real estate goes to the owners, not to Picasso. We retain no ownership in the property after the home is fully sold. And yeah, you're exactly right. The real estate market is super hot. There's a shortage of supply (laughs) and an abundance of demand. So we're anticipating that prices will continue over time. Okay, so I'm going to ask you for specifics now because you said 1 million hits on the website, 60,000 people showing interest. How many people of families have actually bought in? Can you give me that number? No, we're we're a private company, so we don't know our specifics, but it's growing super fast. I mean, faster than we could have ever imagined. No, I'm allowed to ask, though, and you're allowed to say no. Um, What do you say to the criticism that as we've just discussed, the property market's hot. There are people out there that are struggling to get on the housing market already. And you're sort of fueling with an investment vehicle in a way, allowing people to buy second homes, whether it's for an investment or for fun or otherwise, sort of propping up prices. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually, we help to soften some of that demand in this crazy housing market. And the reason why is because Second home, and we focus primarily on second home markets. So when we look at second home markets, what we're seeing is a large percentage, in some cases more than 50% of homes being purchased in these second home destinations are by second home buyers. And second home buyers only use their homes on average five to six weeks per year, which is a really inefficient use of the housing stock. So what we do is we enable up to eight families to purchase one second home, which relieves pressure from the affordable housing tier 
Because without co-ownership, all of those aspiring second homeowners would be competing with primary owners near the median price point. But with Picasso, they can up-level their buying power and buy six to eight times as much home through this co-ownership model. What about global ambitions, geographical spread, other countries? It's a model that I can see working just about anywhere. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So, you know, for me, let me just step back before I answer that for one question and say that, you know, the mission of the company is really about enriching people's lives and making this dream possible for more people. And this was something that my wife and I were, were fortunate to experience about seven years ago when we became second homeowners. And, and we want to make that possible for people all around the world. So right now we're in about a dozen markets west of Colorado. Over the course of the next few months, we'll be expanding east. So by the end of the year, you can expect to see Picasso in almost every major second home market throughout the U.S., as well as internationally. Are you profitable? Uh, actually, we, we are. We reach profitability very quickly. You <laughs> yeah, know, I can we, imagine. We're fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're fortunate to, to have a, a really great solution to a really big problem at, at just the right time. I mean, pre-pandemic, when we surveyed our target audience, 75% of families aspire to own a second home. And what the pandemic has done is intensified that interest because more families have the rethink how they work. So we're seeing a lot of demand for second homes and that certainly has created a tailwind for our business. Austin, fantastic to have you on the show. Great to see what you're doing and um, keep in touch, please. Austin Allison there, the CEO and co-founder of Picasso. All right, coming up, from frustration to invasion at one of the world's most famous football grounds, angry fans calling for change. The details, next. Welcome back to the show. Sunday's uh, English Premier League match between Manchester United and Liverpool postponed after hundreds of angry fans forced their way into uh, United's Old Trafford Stadium. They called for the ouster of Americans Glazer family, the owners of Manchester United, over the decision to join the failed European Super League. Alex Thomas is live for us now. It's known as the Theatre of Dreams, isn't it? It's more of the Theatre of Nightmares after that performance. Fuel on the fire of deep scepticism about the Glazers' family's motives with Manchester United. Yeah, and how embarrassing for the Premier League, yeah. which is the most successful product of its type. It goes out to more than 100 countries around the globe, millions of TV viewers tuning in for this marquee match between the two most successful clubs in English football, Manchester United against Liverpool, the oldest, biggest rivalry in the sport. And it didn't happen. The fans protested to stop the game and they succeeded. Greater Manchester police clearly overwhelmed. They had to call in support from neighbouring police forces just to clear away the protesters who broke onto the pitch. At the moment, no fans allowed into stadiums still because of COVID restrictions. So the fans made their point. Some would say they went over the top because there was some severe violence. Um, but we've had two interesting developments in the last few minutes. I've been frantically typing just before I was waiting to go on air uh, to you, Julia. Uh, the Manchester United Supporters Trust has penned an open letter to Joel Glazer, um, and he's, he's the owner of Manchester United. No one wants what happened at Old Trafford to be a regular event, they say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's the culmination of 16 years of your family's ownership. We feel more sidelined and ignored than ever before. They're demanding changes for personnel on the board, a share scheme for fans with voting rights. They want answers by Friday. 
This is the only way to move on. We suggest you take it, which sounds awfully threatening. Have a listen to what other fans said on Sunday. The reason there's so much frustration is they've not communicated with the fans for 16 years. And that leads to this kind of anger we've seen on this level. They only think about money, don't they? You know, it's, that's all they're interested in, money. That's their only motivation. They don't care about English football. They don't know the culture. And a statement from English pr Premier League um, bosses as well in the last few minutes, Julia. They say the actions of a few clubs in relation to the Super League, this is, cannot be allowed to create such division and disruption. We are determined to establish the truth of what happened over that breakaway plan and hold those clubs accountable for their decisions and actions. The Premier League suggesting new rules and regulations, a new owner's charter saying breaches will be subject to significant sanctions. But none of the clubs that tried to break away have been punished yet. And maybe that's part of the reason why the fans are still angry, Julia. Yeah, probability of change at Manchester United. It's been 16 years. <laughs> Not in the short term, yeah. um, but they are, there's still hundreds of million dollars of debts against the club. Maybe if someone came along with a big offer, the Glazer family would decide to take it. But that's pure speculation at this point. Yeah, got to be a big one. Alex Thomas. Thank you so much for that. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at Chasley CNN. They'll be there in the coming hours. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World is next, including a one-hour special, India's COVID catastrophe, an in-depth look at how bad it is, how it happened, and how you can help. Stay with us. That's next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.